ever told you writing was easy was lying to you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 20, Overall Episode 99 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. I've talked about the different types of book series before, but let's have a little refresher. A standard or episodic series uses the same characters, sometimes the same setting, and the same themes, occasionally the same plot, but a different theme for each book. Each book can stand alone. That is, if you happen to pick up book nine of a series, you don't need books one through eight to know what's going on, except for perhaps some ongoing characters' backstories. The best example for me of this is J.D. Robb's In Death series featuring Eve Dallas and a cast of characters who make an appearance in every book even briefly. But each book is a self-contained story. Again, you don't need to have read any of her other books in that series to appreciate the one you have. Or, as happened with me, it prompts you to go buy and read the books that came before because you're curious how these characters got to where they are. I think I first happened to read book nine or ten in that series, enjoyed it, and quickly read the previous books to get the whole picture. And now I think in September will be like book number 54 or some such in that in-depth series. So I've read a lot of it. I call them my fluff books. J.D. Robb who is also Nora Roberts, however, has a knack for working bits and pieces of the characters' backstories into the main story of each book. So again, you can read any one of the books in the series and understand the characters. If you want to think of it in TV terms, each book is a self-contained episode, as it were. Then there are serial series, where one book builds on the previous ones. Think of the Harry Potter books, though I might argue they could stand somewhat alone, or George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones series. I don't believe you could pick up book three of his series and figure out what was going on unless you'd read books one and two. Each book in a serial series is dependent upon the book that preceded it, though they are also self-contained books with a triggering event, rising action, a denouement, and a conclusion. They also fit 
into the series overall story arc. It would be difficult in a serial series to pick up book four and grasp the whole story arc of the series. In my first serial series, A Perfect Hatred, in case someone were to buy book two, three, or four without book one, I tried using an introductory chapter in those subsequent books that summed up what went on in the books before it. In my second serial series, Self-Inflicted Wounds, I tried summing up the previous book in an author's note at the beginning. Now, I honestly don't know which worked better. I suspect it was a bridging or introductory chapter, but I have no metrics to, you know, defend that. I should probably figure that out by book two of my current serial series, Meeting the Enemy, which starts in June. And you could almost say that all of my books, because they use the same characters, the same espionage organization, the same backstory for the characters, that they are a series in and of themselves. But within that overall series, are a couple of serial series. And if you're confused, let me further illustrate this. The new Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds, which makes this old Trekker's heart really happy, has been pushed and advertised as an episodic series. That is, the story, the episode, each week, is a separate story, unrelated to the previous one, a standalone. Some people are reacting to this as if it's some new concept in entertainment. But back in the Dark Ages, when I watched the three, maybe four channels we had, all the shows were episodic. Wagon Train, High Chaparral, The Dick Van Dyke Show, Mayberry RFD, They were all episodic. Each week you got familiar characters, but a wholly different story. Even the original Star Trek series was episodic, as were its successors up until the final season, I believe, of Enterprise, which was devoted entirely to a Zendi attack on Earth, an alien attack on Earth, and how Captain Archer and his crew worked to prevent a second one. Every episode that season was something to do with the Zindi War. When Star Trek Discovery rebooted the franchise five or so years ago, the producers and writers took a different approach. Each weekly episode built on the previous one. If you came in at the middle of the season which is what happened to some people because it's on a streaming channel that you had to subscribe to, what that season's story arc was would be almost incomprehensible. I think that was somewhat responsible for the negative fan reaction that Discovery got. I wasn't terribly fond of Discovery my first time watching it, 
But then I went back and rewatched the first season and I found things that made more sense to me. But it was very obvious that if I hadn't watched the first several episodes, I wouldn't know what the hell was going on. So season one was about the Klingon War and the Mirror Universe. Season two was the mysterious red angel that appeared at moments of disaster, plus the battle with a rogue artificial intelligence. Series three was finding the cause of the burn. And series four was about rebuilding the Federation to deal with an extra galactic threat. Definitely a serial series, as is the other new Star Trek reboot, Picard Seasons 1 and 2. Not so Strange New Worlds, which even after only two episodes feels like old Trek, a different planet and or species every week. That's what I loved so much about the original Trek, those glimpses every week into Strange New Worlds. But apparently, when I started writing... I didn't take that to heart, and obviously I'm also a glutton for punishment, since, as I said, I'm starting my third serial series. Both of my previous series started out as a single book, an incomplete and incoherent single book, which is why A Perfect Hatred became four books and Self-Inflicted Wounds is three books. In both cases, the overall story I wanted to tell was too much for one book. Now, I have also written at least three standalone novels, all of which feature the same characters and concepts, and like I said before, could be considered, when you look at all my books, and there are 21 of them now, could be a series in and of itself. But in the case of these standalone novels, I managed, somehow, to wrap the story up in a single book. But in each case, the book focused on an event that had a narrow scope of time. A few weeks in one case, several months in another. And I have three more standalone novels in the queue, again, each on a topic with a narrow scope. And a series, whether episodic or serial, means you have to make sure you've tied up all the threads you started in book one. Thankfully, I have a great editor who will not hesitate to point out when I have left a thread flopping about aimlessly. So, if you have any friends out there who are thinking about becoming writers because they believe it's an easy job, disabuse them of that right now. It's work, and I had to retire from one job to do this job of writing. But it was all worth it. Now I want to give a mini-review of a couple of spy movies I recently watched via streaming. The first is All the Old Knives on Prime Video, Amazon Prime Video. This movie features Chris Pine, who, also coincidentally, played Captain Kirk in J.J. Abrams' rebooted Star Trek movies. 
And the second movie is Operation Mincemeat on Netflix. This one featured Colin Firth and Matthew McFadden, who happened to be two former Mr. Darcy's for all you Jane Austen fans. Operation Mincemeat also features as a minor character Ian Fleming, rather Ian Fleming as played by actor Johnny Flynn. All the Old Knives is a slick, nearly contemporary story about a leak from a CIA station that cost a hijacked airplane full of people their lives. I haven't read the book it's based on, but I might, given the movie. It's kind of a reverse thing. Sometimes you read a book, you see the movie, and you hate the movie because it doesn't follow the book. So this might be a reverse thing. The story is set up for you to spend the entire movie thinking you know who the leak is. But the twist at the end is pretty wrenching. Good, but wrenching. It also accurately depicts how in a crisis, a case officer goes out to use all their assets to help in coming up with a response to that crisis. Great acting in this movie, accurate depiction of tradecraft, and overall a good story. Though I found it a little hard to believe that the CIA would be as vengeful as it is in this story. And that's all I'll say. Operation Mincemeat harkens back to World War II, before D-Day, when the Allies decided they needed to invade Sicily as a prelude to an eventual full-fledged invasion we now call D-Day. The problem was the Nazis would be waiting for any invasion in Sicily. They were certain that part of Europe was going to be invaded. It would be in Sicily. So British intelligence concocts a scheme to have a body of a British officer found with documents indicating the invasion was to be in Greece. The Nazis would move troops to confront that, and the invasion of Sicily would go forward without massive casualties. Now, if this sounds like the 1956 movie, The Man Who Never Was, it's because that movie and Operation Mincemeat are based on the same book. Operation Mincemeat is a great depiction of the inner workings of British intelligence during the war, of having to deal with interagency rivalries and politics, and the meticulous detail involved with making this unclaimed corpse into an army officer the Nazis would believe was carrying invasion plans, down to the things that were in his pockets. It's called pocket litter when you're operating under a cover, but you are alive then. Letters from an imaginary fiancé, all the things that you would expect a British army officer in the 1940s to be carrying in his pockets. Very, very good depiction of the detail that they went to to put this over on the Nazis. It's lots of intrigue, a hint of romance, and typical British dark humor. I really loved it. So, 
there you have some good spy movie recommendations. Both would be great on a rainy afternoon. And now, a brief commercial. If you don't want to be missing out on book one of my upcoming new series, Meeting the Enemy, go pre-order it now. Then, on June 25th, it will appear in your Kindle library not long after midnight, and you can get started on this four-book journey. I'll post the link in the description for this episode, or you can go to Amazon and search for Terror, P.A. Duncan, and that should get you to the pre-order page and maybe on some terrorist watch lists. Who knows? And because we had the movie review, commercial over. All right, for today's reading, we're going to move forward into book one, Terror. And let me set this up. Because the Arbust administration is limiting UN operations in the upcoming invasion of Afghanistan after 9-11, Nelson, the head of the directorate, and the CIA director Boyd Waller enact a contingency plan, one that was created several years before. In it, my Fisher will become Catherine Burke, a CIA case officer. Yes, you heard that right. She's a case officer with extensive experience who has recently been rotated to Langley to try out a management job. And the director, Waller, makes her his chief of staff. Her legend and cover have to be unbreakable, Though, as Mai points out herself, there are holdovers in the Arbus administration who will know she's not Catherine Burke, namely the FBI director Emmett Brasso. So she's understandably concerned when she accompanies Boyd Waller to a White House security meeting. And this scene begins after that meeting has taken a brief break. Meeting the Enemy, Book One, Terror, Chapter 35. White House aides and staff directed people to restrooms, and when Mai re-entered the Situation Room, only the Attorney General, the FBI Director, and Waller remained, along with a general and an admiral. The two military men looked at Mai with a frown but said nothing. FBI Director Emmett Brasso still pointedly didn't make eye contact and mostly kept his back to her. She still didn't trust him not to blow her cover. Waller returned from the men's room and stood with Mai. Voice low, he said, Seems you passed muster. The day's not over, she murmured. Ah, not to worry. I'm beginning to think your Mr. Nelson can move heaven and earth with a little finger, but you probably already knew that. We try not to swell his head. A man who'd sat directly behind Vice President Stodden entered, looked around, and headed for Waller with purposeful strides. Mai recognized him from her legend filed as the Vice President's Personal Intelligence Liaison, a position non-existent until Stodden had created it. 
The CIA had provided daily presidential briefings for decades, usually given by the director of operations or the CIA director himself. But this hand-picked new liaison received a copy of the daily briefing in his office in the nearby executive office building. He'd been with the CIA barely five years, came from operations, but had only had headquarters assignments. The likely reason he'd been given a high-level position was because of his father's numerous and generous contributions to the Arbus Staden campaign. His eyes on Mai, the young man, spoke to Waller. Good morning, Director. I thought I'd be giving the briefing as usual, but if you... Waller smiled at the man, and Mai wondered if he could see the insincerity in it. No, no, you go right ahead, Waller said. My chief of staff and I have a copy. You can refer the hard questions to us. Ignoring Waller's dig, the man's eyes narrowed at Mai. I wasn't aware you'd changed your chief of staff, sir. Well, understandable, what with your pressing duties here, Waller said, his smile incessant. He gave Mai a flicker of a wink. Catherine Burke, Winston Everett. You're new, Everett said to Mai. Hardly. I've been on assignment for many years and rotated to Langley for a stab at management, Mai said. As chief of staff? Yes. Why? Everett asked, more like a blurt. Because she has recent hands-on experience in the Balkans and the Middle East, Waller said, and because I wanted her there. I see, Everett said, his eyes not leaving Mai. Director, may I have a word in private? Whatever you have to say, Miss Burke can hear it. Everett looked at Waller for the first time. Sir, I don't know her. I do, Mr. Everett. Speak your mind now. I don't want Arbuster Starden to witness an internecine squabble. We've had enough shit piled in our heads in the past few days. Everett smoothed an expensive tie. I've worked in operations for five years, and I've never heard of Miss Burke. I was deep under coma, Mai said. My networks and aliases will need to know, and I used a great many cover names. Everett smoothed the tie again, shot his cuff, flashing pricey gold cufflinks with the vice presidential seal, and picked an imaginary piece of lint from a sleeve. The smile he gave Mai was as insincere as Waller's to him. As our old case officers would say, you're in from the cold. As apt a characterization as any, Everett, Mai replied. Mr. Everett. And that's quite a distinctive British accent. Uh, left over from an operation? She and Nelson had debated whether she should do an American accent, but she would never have been able to sustain one long enough to be credible. Waller said, I'm grateful to have someone of Ms. Burke's background and experience at my side to offer advice. Advice on what? Everett asked. Before either of them could answer, the president re-entered the situation room. First this time, Vice President Stodden and National Security Advisor Bills trailing behind. Arbus looked around at the diminished number of people and grinned. Where'd everybody go? 
See, Demi, I told you we should have those little nice crab puffs that you make. Oh, those are something to stick around for, let me tell you guys. Oh, and, uh, gals, the president said. Well, thank you so much, Mr. President, Bill said, her blush darkening her latte-colored complexion. Still in profiling mode, my studied Bill's expression as she smiled at the president and pursed her lips to keep from smiling herself. Did the renowned Cold War scholar and former college dean have a crush on Gordon Arbus Jr.? Arbus resumed his seat, with Bills and Stodden flanking him again. However, Everett returned to Stodden's side and whispered something to him while looking at Mai, something that made Stodden squint and scowl. He, in turn, whispered something to Everett, who came to sit on Boyd Waller's other side. Okay, said Arbus. What's next? The FBI went over its latest information on the hijackers' background, specifically their pilot training here in the United States. My stringer at the FAA had bootlegged copies for her of the hijackers' airman records, and Mai had given Waller insight on them, not filtered by the FBI. Stodden asked, no, demanded, Do they receive any aviation training in Iraq? No, Mr. Vice President, FBI Director Brasso said. There are no aviation training facilities in Iraq. Well, that's correct, Waller added. Iraqi military and airline pilots are trained elsewhere. Egypt and Jordan now, the RAF before the Gulf War. I guarantee you, Sodom has secret pilot training bases, Stodden said. Waller, Brasso, you both need to look deeper. See if any of the hijackers train there. Brasso and Waller exchanged a look. We'll certainly look into that, Mr. Vice President, Brasso murmured. Stodden turned to Waller. Have your image analyst people scoured satellite images for those pilot training bases? Sir, respectfully, I'd rather have them spending time looking at Afghanistan imagery for our and the military's eventual use there, Waller said. Our assets in Iraq and in the expatriate community here would have told us if there were aviation training bases in Iraq. Brasso said, the Secretary of Transportation has indicated the hijackers' training records are comprehensive. We can safely conclude the training received in the U.S. was of the type they would need to navigate and operate the hijacked aircraft. God damn it! Stodden exploded, the expletive making Brasso wince. The President wants you to check for pilot training bases in Iraq, bases that might have trained the hijackers. Arbus shook himself from some daydream and added, Yeah, uh, yeah, Stodgy, you, you got the right idea. To Mai's ears, that sounded rehearsed. Stodden smirked at Waller. Muscles in Waller's jaw quivered, but he said, I'll have someone take a look. Arbus's eyes started to glaze over again, and after another nudge from Bills, he said, Okay, tennis, what you got for me? Tennis was the nickname Arbus had given Waller. Tennis was Waller's way of staying fit. Mr. President, Waller said, making a point to hold his gaze, 
the CIA is close to being able to move teams into Afghanistan. I'll forego the particulars about numbers of teams and where, because Mr. Everett has the most recent presidential daily briefing containing that data. He can go over it with you and the vice president at your leisure. We will have the maximum number of teams ready to move when you give the order. How many teams will you be moving into Iraq? Stodden asked. None at this time, Mr. Vice President. Bin Laden is in Afghanistan. That's where we will focus our teams. Again, our assets in place in Iraq will continue to provide intel. And if we see any trending about Iraq and 9-11, we'll move appropriately. Stodden turned to Arbust. Sending all the CIA teams into Afghanistan is a strategic error, Stodden said. We need those teams in Iraq to build the case for our intervention. Mai was glad for her emotional control and didn't react to Stodden's casual confirmation of Nelson's suspicions. Demetra Bills finally spoke up. Mr. President, I'm sure what the Vice President means is that we should have teams in Iraq to determine if there is a connection to the 9-11 attacks. Stodden didn't disguise his naked contempt for her. Waller said, I reiterate, our assets in place in Iraq, of long standing, by the way, and our relationship with the Iraqi expat community here have indicated a connection between Iraq and 9-11 is unlikely. Indeed, intel from Baghdad indicates that while Hussein got a kick out of the attacks, they took him by surprise, totally. We are, of course, using all available means to check, double-check, and triple-check that. But our priority is Afghanistan and putting sufficient teams in place to smooth the way for military forces. Secretary of State Malcolm Jackson cut in. I have to second Director Waller on that. The military needs current intel from Afghanistan, not Iraq. Stodden's glare shifted to the former general. Winston Everett cleared his throat and looked at Waller. If I may, Director? And then he continued without waiting for Waller's assent. Mr. Vice President, sir, we know bin Laden is in Afghanistan. We need to take care of that vermin quickly and refocus on other threats in the area. This was a conspiracy, no doubt about it. So we'll weaken the Afghani leg of the conspiracy stool and it will tip over. Then we can pull the rest of the evildoers out of the shadows and punish them too. You can rest assured Saddam Hussein will be one of them, that he had some part in this. Right now, sir, as the president has indicated to the country, we will mete out justice to the bastard who dared assault our freedom and way of life. Mai's mouth crimped to hold back her words. Nelson hadn't been specific about when she should speak up, but Everett wasn't finished. Our liberty, our hard-won democracy, the model for the world, was attacked by specious cowards, Everett said. And, sirs, may I say, your bravery in the face of that attack and in confronting the unknown since then is inspiring not only to the American people, but to freedom-loving people around the world. Arbus flushed, looked uneasy, as if in embarrassment of his hasty flight away 
from the part of the country attacked. Stodden had smiled smugly at Everett's praise, apparently not concerned that he'd been hidden in the White House's secure bunker on the day. Mai could quite easily recall where she was that day, where she remained in her dreams when she slept. At that moment, the concussion headache made an unwelcome entrance, her aspirin having worn off. The images of her climb from the rubble flickered behind her eyes. She barely heard Everett say, Here's the plan. We'll drop the CIA teams into Afghanistan, as I, uh, uh, as Director Waller has indicated. They'll have plenty of cash to buy, um, hire warlords as our allies. Those who are opposed to the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, uh, Ghulam, Massoud, for example, both of whom have large armies, have fought the Taliban successfully. The CIA will use them to smooth the way for special forces, and we'll be in Kabul with Taliban heads on pikes well before Christmas. Jesus wept, my thought. Well, Nelson had told her to stir things up. I think we'll stop there and maybe pick up what happens next in next week's episode, which will be overall episode number 100. Again, I have no clue what was said at these classified White House briefings. I did prepare some FAA briefing papers that maybe made it all the way up there. They at least made it to our administrator and to the Secretary of Transportation, but I can't say for sure that my little words ended up in the White House Situation Room. But, you know, it's a little fantasy I can indulge. So this scene is absolute fiction based on what I thought my characters would say in the circumstances. It looks like warm weather this weekend. So you know, of course, among the people out soaking up rays are probably people you need to pay attention to. And that means you need to keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Join us next week for the 100th episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. And the JFK Library has just awarded Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky a Profile in Courage Award. Well deserved. So please, stand with President Zelensky and with Ukraine.